Okay, so welcome to Sutta Friday in this very life, as it's called. And today we're going to start something rather different from what we've um, been doing up to now, or have been doing recently at least. And we're going to look at a chapter from the Dhammapada. Um, the Dhammapada, uh, many of you may know, is a very ancient text that is um, probably parts of it came, uh, were already in circulation in the kind of yogic community in India before the, the Buddha's time. And when he started teaching, he incorporated uh, some of these classic teaching verses and probably, you know, changed them a little bit to fit his teaching. But that was maybe part of his way of um, connecting with what people already knew in that time. Um, and they're very sweet verses. Well, actually, I don't know if they're all sweet. Some of them are actually kind of um, a little uh, give you a poke <laughs> about behavior and practice, but they cover a wide range of topics and have a particular flavor to them. If you read the whole text, uh, you'll get a, a sense about what they cover, even though they do cover sila, samadhi, and panya. They do it in a very distinct way, and we see some of that in this chapter. Um, and we'll see a little bit also in this one that some of the chapters, um, in fact, I think all the chapters have a little bit of sense of gathering a bunch of stuff together, but not necessarily all in one unit. You know, there's parts where it's, it seems like something was just sort of on the topic, so they stuck it in. It's We shouldn't expect that the chapter has a progression from one thing to another as a complete unit. It seems to be a little bit more of a patchwork. Um, so I, I don't know if I've just inserted that idea into your mind, but that seems, uh, we'll see as we go along through this one. So uh, I'll just say one more thing before we start reading out loud and discussing, which is that this word, the just, um, is uh, dhammata in Pali. And it's, um, it's an interesting word that could have a number of meanings, and that's why Bhikkhu Sujato calls it, does he call it one who stands in the dhamma? Something like that. It, I mean, the words literally mean firm in Dhamma or established in Dhamma or simply um, righteous is another word um, if one is a little interpretive. And so it seems that a lot of people have called this the just and there is some reference um, to weighing things in this chapter. So since justice is of interest to some people here, uh, we might be interested in what the Buddha talks about in relation to that. As usual, it's not our sort of mundane, worldly concerns about these things, but they are interesting. So um, we're looking at the translation by Bhante Buddharakata because I thought that was the best of the online ones that I could find. But I also like this one by Gil Fronstall. Um, I think it's quite nice if you have his book. So. Um, would somebody like to read maybe the first two stanzas? They kind of go together. Jill. Not by passing arbitrary judgments does a man become just. A wise man is he who investigates both right and wrong. He who does not judge others arbitrarily, but passes judgment impartially according to the truth, 
That sagacious man is a guardian of law and is called just. Okay, thank you. Leanne mentioned earlier that uh, the male pronoun was yes. a little jarring to her, but this, yes. this is, of course, the traditional text. And some of the Gill, for example, makes an you know makes an attempt not to be one-sided about that. Um, but that's what we get here with um, the more traditional translation by the monk. Um, I have a question. So, yeah, please. Is it possible for you to read those two from Gills? Because I don't sure. have that. Just to see what that's like. In yeah, I can do that as we go along. Um, they are kind of different, which is kind okay. of nice along the way. So um, he writes, one is not just who judges a case hastily. A wise person considers both what is and isn't right, guiding others without force, impartially and in accord with the Dharma. One is called a guardian of the Dharma, intelligent and just. So you can see all the same words. The only thing that I see that's majorly different is saying guiding others without force, which you don't see at all in Bhante Buddharakata. He says, um, passage judgment impartially according to the truth or pass a judgment impartially. I think that's guiding others without force. Is that right? Uh, oh no, it's, um, sorry. It's he who does not judge others arbitrarily. Gill translates as guiding others without force. So we're only at the very beginning. We haven't really filled out the whole, you know, picture of what is just here, but it's interesting that, um, you know, what, is, what do you think he, the Buddha is pointing to here? He's trying to be, trying to bring some clarity to an abstract word by giving these examples. A lot of the um, text in this one is about what things aren't. Not by this, but rather by this. That's a, the kind of style of this chapter. So what do you hear in this? There isn't just one answer. I'm curious. Yeah, Abby. Sort of careful consideration, right? Not some kind of knee-jerk reaction mm -hmm. or, yeah. Yeah, this word arbitrary that, that um, Bhante Buddharakata translates as arbitrary, um, Gil translates as hastily. Um, and it could also just be kind of, you know, uh, Sloppily, I think, would be another reasonable translation of sah sahana, I think is what the word is. Anyway, um, yeah, so yeah, there's a degree of care uh, here, which is important. What do you think about investigating both right and wrong? And Gill says, considers both what is and isn't right. I, I actually, or I was trying to wrap that into what I was saying. That like, yeah, that like you carefully weigh everything, not just what you might immediately think, but like you really look at both sides and, um, or not just, well, he, he's putting it into right and wrong, but um I would think it's also sort of a more just global, like different perspectives. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, because the standard here is not um, that person's opinion, but it's the Dharma. So he's judging according to some kind of natural law. I think it's interesting, one other addition, I guess this is going to turn into com uh, translation comparison because uh, uh, there is a case, a place where Buddharakata in the second stanza says that person is a guardian of law and Gil says a guardian of the Dharma. The word, of course, is Dhamma, uh, mm. but uh, Gil uses the literal, he doesn't translate it and just says, says Dharma. Um, but Dharma has a lot of different meanings. It can mean the Buddha's teachings, or it can mean natural law, how things operate, which in the Buddhist sense is um, actually according to ethical principles of what is skillful and unskillful. Um, it doesn't have much to do with, you know, sort of natural laws of physics, although that's eventually included somewhere in how things operate, but that's not so much of interest. It's really more about what is relevant for the path, what is relevant for liberation and for, for goodness in the world. So yeah, we have somebody, as Evie pointed out, who's using this kind of standard and not, not even their, just their own perspective or an idea of what they want to happen or, or even maybe what society, society conventional society would say is, is just. This is not, uh, so this justice is not um, a political justice related to a particular societal situation, but something that's meant to, I think, be elevated outside of that. Although it's framed in sort of a very nice sense, a sagacious guardian of law, justice, but we have to remember that the Buddha didn't even live in his society. You know, he lived outside according to his own principles. He didn't feel that he fit into being the king. That was not his destiny. Okay, so we've probably beaten that one <laughs> beyond, beyond what we could read into it, really. Um, so how about the next? Uh, so now we start getting into things about, you know, who is this just person? So now we have a, a sort of an ideal picture, and then it goes into a few more specifics. Um, why don't we go with the next two stanzas, 50, 258 and 259? Would somebody read those? Yeah, Leanne. One who is not wise because one speaks much. Oh, sorry, one is not wise because one speaks much. He who is peaceable, friendly, and fearless is called wise. A man who is not versed in Dhamma because he speaks much. He who, after hearing a little Dhamma, realizes its truth directly and is not heedless of it, is truly versed in the Dhamma. Okay. Thank you. Um, do you guys want to continue with the comparison? You want me to read Gill's? Jill says yes, okay. So this has a lot of one in it because Buddharakata has a lot of he. So we have one is not wise only because one speaks a lot. One who is peaceful without hate and fearless is said to be wise. One does not uphold the Dhamma only because one speaks a lot. Having heard even a little, if one perceives the Dharma with one's own body and is never negligent of the Dharma, then one is indeed an upholder of the Dharma. I found Gil to be a little verbose in this um, translation. Uddharakata is more concise, um, but that's how it goes. The, the verses are very compact in the Pali, um, and so it's 
challenging to write compact English if you want to convey the exact thing. And so it's easy to kind of expand into longer phrases to, to be clear. This is a real, verse is much harder to translate, by the way, than prose. And so we'll see more differences. Okay, but getting to the content, um, we have someone who is not wise only because one speaks much and not versed in Dharma only because one speaks much. What do you think is being conveyed here? How does this come across? Yeah, Bruce. Maybe pointing towards frivolous speech or just uh, someone who just gabs. But um, yeah, the, the thing that really caught my attention here because it just sort of, it didn't seem to quite fit with the rest, but I like it a lot, is the fearless piece. Friendly uh -huh. and fearless, because I think sometimes we Buddhists kind of think that we should uh, always be uh, calm and, and nice and sweet and never really uh, come on strong. But, you know, you, you see the examples of someone like Ajahn Chah, and at times he was very fearless if that's what was called for. And a lot of the Zen masters also, you know, have this reputation for being very blunt and straightforward. So anyway, I like that. that yeah, that one doesn't get, it may relate also to judging things by the natural law of Dharma rather than anything conventional, just, you know, mm -hmm. saying what the truth is. This is how it is. Yeah, Susan. Comes to mind is um, I have a neighbor who has very strong opinions about things, um, and they're it's often um, very racist. And it's surprising to me that the times where I'm listening to him and he really feels like he knows what he's talking about, <laughs> and I'm saying very little. <laughs> and um, yeah, that's, anyway, that's just what comes to mind that that type of personality. Of speaking much is what you're referring to here. Yeah, I read this a little bit as, you know, you can always talk about things, but can you actually do them or model them or, you know, have you actually realized them? So this is an issue for teachers also, as you can talk a lot when you're given the microphone, but, um, you know, this is not necessarily someone who is wise or versed in the Dharma. I like it that he says um, someone's not versed in the Dharma because he speaks much. There also later we're going to get a reference to having learned a lot. So that's, you know, people like me who study the texts voraciously. But that's not what the Buddha is referring to, actually, as in the important kind of knowledge. Um, so it says here, even someone who's only heard a little bit, um, but realizes what they've heard and is actually able to... Um, know what that is, recognize that in themselves, that's actually uh, what it means to be truly versed in the Dhamma. So I really think that's sweet. Yeah, Jill. I'm, I'm also looking at Tanjeff's translation at the same time. And what I really like is that um, he's saying whoever, although he's heard next to nothing, sees Dhamma through his body is not heedless of Dhamma. He's one who maintains the Dhamma. I like the body reference very much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Gil had that too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, one who perceives the Dharma with one's own body. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
some teachers, the word has rupa in it, um, in Pali, which is of course the word for form. And some teachers take that literally to say that you should know the Dharma in the body. Most, most teachers do, but there's a subset that sees it more figuratively and will say um, directly instead of in the body, they'll say, yeah. Or maybe it's not rupa, maybe it's kaya actually for body. Um, but body, kaya is a word that actually can mean other things besides the physical body. But teachers like Tan Jeff and Gill who emphasize body um, awareness, both of them as meditation teachers teach concentration through the body, for example. Um, so it makes sense to me that they would interpret kaya to be uh, knowing something with the body. Yeah. Okay. So now we have two um, paragraphs, two stanzas about being an elder. So um, I think this might be highly relevant for um, folks in our Dharma scene. So uh, who would like to read um, the two about the elder? Okay, Evie. A monk is not an elder because his head is gray. He is but ripe in age, and he is called one grown old in vain. One in whom there is truthfulness, virtue, inoffensiveness, restraint, and self-mastery, who is free from defilements and is wise. He is truly called an elder. Okay, thank you. Yeah, and we see... Um... In Gill's translation, well, he uses a funny phrase. What does he say? <clears throat> Gray hair does not make one an elder. Someone ripe only in years is called an old fool. It's through truth, dharma, harmlessness, restraint, and self-control that the wise one, purged of impurities, is called an elder. <laughs> so what is being conveyed here? Jill. Age doesn't make one wise. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think these are fairly straightforward. Humbling for us as we all get older. Um, but he does tell us the positive things that are associated with actual wisdom, truthfulness, virtue, inoffensiveness, restraint, and self-mastery. So a sense of having gained in the practice, just like the previous one. If, you know, if you haven't heard that much, if you've done the practice and realized something, that's good enough. And, you know, in this case, um, yeah, mere people who are merely elderly in years may not have actually gained wisdom. I imagine this was more <clears throat> of a powerful statement in Indian society, which had a much stronger sense of elderhood and you know, we are unusual in our society, in the modern world of valuing kind of youth over old age. You know, youth is always valued in some way, but most more traditional societies have a more hierarchical understanding that people gain in stature and respect and honor simply because they get older, which I think is now Kim's interpretation, but you know, in a world where you may not really may not get old, you know, because there are so many ways you can die. Um, that's a special thing. And so there's sort of more 
accorded to that. Whereas, you know, we don't consider it as important now that it's much, you know, much easier. Yeah, Richard. I, I, was, <clears throat> I noticed that in the 261, elder is capitalized. Um, is that a technical term for a, like a category of monk? That's an interesting question. I noticed that also is that he doesn't capitalize it in the one <clears throat> that's a little bit more disparaging. Let me look. Let's look on the Pali. Um, oops, it's not that one. Hang on. This. Let's try again. Sorry. Uh, there it is. Okay. So what are we looking at? 261. Uh, this poly is a little bit hard to follow. Okay. Uh, tarot. Yeah, like Tara. So elder. Um, and in the one where it's, sorry, it says Sanskrit interspersed with the Pali, I found it a little confusing trying to read it. It's the same word though, tarot is used here in um, 260 and also here in 261. So um, the difference in capitalization seems to be only an interpretation by Buddharakata. Um, but it is the word, I think tarot was used even for non-monks, I think. I'm not totally sure about that. I don't have enough. I mean, certainly now in Thailand, it's used as a monastic title, but in ancient India, where it was actually a, just a common word, I don't know. I don't know enough about that. It's a good question. Um, there is actually, you've sort of pre, pre um, pointed out something I'm going to say later about some terminology it's, uh, that uh, is ignored by Buddharakata that's actually in the Pali. Um, but we're not there yet. Anything else on the elders? We can all keep practicing because <laughs> we're not guaranteed to get wise as we get older. Okay, so the next two also go together. These are sort of couplets, this particular chapter, it seems like. So how about 262 and 263? Um, would somebody like to read those? Okay, Richard. Thank you. <clears throat> Not by mere eloquence nor by beauty of form does a man become accomplished if he is jealous, selfish, and deceitful. But he in whom these are wholly destroyed, uprooted, and extinct, and who has cast out hatred, that wise man is truly accomplished. Okay, thank you. Yeah, so we have this word accomplished. Interestingly, Gill uses good character for that word that's translated here as accomplished. So he says, not through talk alone or by good looks does someone envious, stingy, and treacherous become a person of good character. But with these cut off, uprooted and destroyed, a person wise and purged of faults is called of good character. Similar. Um, so are you starting to see the pattern in this chapter? There's kind of a sense of not through these more commonly understood ways is a person, you know, some 
good quality. Instead, it is because they are, you know, truly ethical or truly wise or harmless or etc. So he's sort of substituting, he's sort of taking, you know, common ways of understanding and plugging it into, here's how my teaching would interpret this particular concept. And my, my sense from reading the Dhammapada is there's a lot of that in here is that, and I think that relates to it being um, a text that was already around in some ways. And the Buddha was perhaps kind of shining his own light on some of these same concepts. Again, my interpretation, uh, not totally scholarly. Um, anything else stand out in these ones about being accomplished or being of good character? Leanne. Well, it means um, not by um, beauty or form. So we are to look it deeper into the human. Inner instead of outer. There. Right. Right. Yeah. Eloquence and beauty of form you could see externally in a person, but he points to what matters is that you're not jealous, selfish, deceitful, etc. It's nice. Um, one thing I appreciate about the Dhammapada is that it, it very persistently equates um, ethics with spiritual accomplishment. And, you know, that might seem obvious anyway, but there are people who, and remember, especially in ancient India also, there were people who practiced um, meditation for the power that one gets through it or for the miracles that one can work or for the special experiences etc. And you do need a certain level of ethics to be able to have those experiences. But there wasn't always among the meditators a sense of cultivating one's character and, you know, really following clear ethical guidelines as an integral part of one's total liberative path. So Dhammapada is very clear about that. Okay, so now we have a bunch of stuff about what makes one a monk, according to uh, Buddharakata's translation. Um, so there's actually, yes, there are two. I'm sorry, I'm just checking. Um, so there's two paragraphs about, uh, the, there's four about a monk here. So we have, you know, 264 through 267 are all about a monk. Um, in the Pali, there are about two different things. That was where I, where I kind of tripped up looking at that. And Gill uses two different words in translating them. They're similar. But anyway, so we could um, read all four of those together, 264 through 267. Um, would somebody like to go? We can repeat people, by the way. So if you've already gone and you want to go again, that's okay. Oh, okay. Not by shaven head does a man who is indisciplined and untruthful become a monk. How can he who is full of desire and greed be a monk? He who wholly subdues evil, both small and great, is called a monk, because he has overcome all evil. He is not a monk just because he lives on others' alms. Not by adopting outward form does one become a true monk. 
whoever here in the dispensation lives a holy life transcending both merit and demerit and walks with understanding in this world, he is truly called a monk. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, so, just a little vocabulary point here. Um, all of those words for monk, actually there's two different words. So in the first two, 264 and 265, the word is somino, which really means kind of, well, it means a renunciate, it, renunciant. That's what Gill translates it as. So someone who is living the ascetic life outside of the boundaries of society. And then in 266 and 267, um, the word changes from samano to bhikkhu. And so bhikkhu really is um, more of a, a monk and actually um, Gill translates it as mendicant. But that would be someone who is actually ordained and part of an order and so forth. So there is a slight, but Buddha uses monk for all of those. Um, but that's okay. I just uh, noticed that in the in the translations. But again, we have um, the Buddha making a point about what is and isn't, you know, qualifying as the renunciate life. Um, and to us now in the modern West, this might seem like kind of fine distinctions, and we're not in, we're not doing that life anyway. But in the Buddhist time, there were a lot of people who were pursuing different spiritual paths and um, uh, remember that there were many teachers like the Buddha who were ascetic teachers living in this kind of outside of the bounds of the city, living on alms, uh, philosophers, mystics, you know, uh, these kinds of folks. And so the Buddha had to spend some time differentiating his own order. Um, but he's also giving, you know, again, the, the ethical lessons on internal cultivation as the as opposed to external form that's what i hear in these are there other comments yeah leanne um i was i liked gill's interpretation and in using the word renunciate mm -hmm. and renunciation to me has always been something i've struggled with a little bit i mean it's the, there's this, the um superficial giving of coffee or candy bars but, you know, how do you go deeper with renunciation and this sort of, you know, point some of the way of um, pacifying evil, small and great. And so it's more inner work. Again, the inner is being um, the, the main point here. Yeah. What that's, not to look at. That's beautifully said. I think you're exactly right about renunciation is that you, it's very easy to Sometimes people's resistance to the word is because they think it means they'll have to give up their house and their car and you know the sort of things that are material supports in their lives. Um, but in the end, the Buddhists, I think, pointing toward a much deeper kind of renunciation of letting go of our of our mental problems, you know, our our habits and defilements and eventually our identity and you know these kinds of things. These are actually the more important renunciation. Because there were uh, followers of the Buddha, like Anattapindika, who were wealthy. And um, the Buddha didn't tell him, first you have to become poor, and then, <laughs> then you'll be able to walk the path. Anattapindika was um, at least a stream enter, and I think he died more advanced than that. And he was a wealthy banker who was one of the big supporters of the Buddha. Um, 
so yeah, it's a little bit, it's a, it gets more subtle, as you said. I, I appreciate your picking up that term renunciation and noticing that it has other dimensions to it. Yeah. Yeah, Bruce. Kim, can you say something about um, on 267, transcending both merit and demerit? I, I've heard of, you know, I've heard the monks actually talk about merit in a positive way, but I know, you know, making merit can become sort of superficial uh, as, as people pray and leave offerings and things that they are, or even donate money with that in mind that they're making merit and that's why they're doing it. So anything to say about that? Yeah, I was hoping we'd get to that, um, to that little phrase. It's very, it's actually one of the most interesting ones in this chapter. So one who, um, what did he say? He says transcends, transcends both merit and demerit. Gill says, whoever sets aside both merit and evil. Um, so I'm not sure that merit had quite the um, societal sense that then that it does now in modern Thailand, for example, where, um, but that could be part of it. I tend to see it as pointing toward this being related to what Leanne said about renunciation, is that um, in the end, uh, what's aimed toward is something that is neither uh, bright nor dark, right? There are the four kinds of karma, bright, dark, both bright and dark, and neither bright nor dark, or, you know, leading beyond bright and dark, something like that. And so there's an idea that uh, liberation and nibbana are neither actually neither good nor evil. You know, they're kind of outside of that whole dualism. It's just a little flavor of non-dualism in the early teachings. You don't see that expanded out and made into something like it is in the later traditions, but it's there uh, in the sense that um, we walk a path of, of merit, for sure. You know, we're doing good all along the way, cultivating the wholesome. The mind has to be filled up with, the, with good in order to have liberating insight. Um, and then, uh, but however, what we're going toward lets go of everything, even our goodness, even any identification with I'm walking the path or I'm a non-returner about to gain full liberation or something, you know, all of that goes, I don't know. I like there, that. <laughs> does that make sense? Yeah. I'm sure there are multiple levels of this. Leanne, were you waving your hand earlier to say something? No, you were waving at Glenn. Okay. <laughs> okay, Richard. So, um, what occurs to me is that sometimes we talk about merit and demerit being, or good and evil being the consequence of karma. Mm -hmm. um, so is this implying moving to a stage where one is not generating comma of any kind of either positive or negative? I think it, yes, it, it points toward, that's a clearer way of saying, um, of saying that is that yes, it gets to a point where, well, for example, Nibbana is neither merit nor demerit and the path that we walk points outside the solution, the solution, if you will, is outside of the realm of comma. It, there is no solution within the repeating round. I, I hesitate a little bit at this um, sense of um, 
that a you know, for example, an awakened person doesn't generate any karma. I'm not totally sure. I I I haven't gone through the language to be able to speak about that clearly enough. Um, certainly, the Buddha doesn't generate any uh, rebirth linking karma. You know, he will get to the end, and that's going to be it. He's just playing out the karma that's already appearing. So in a sense, he's not creating more karma. But the challenge is when people use that as, you know, uh, the teacher is enlightened and therefore nothing he does can be evil or something. So I'm worried about that. But I think in the in the genuine profound sense, you're, what you're saying is absolutely correct, is that this is pointing beyond the world of merit and demerit or good and bad karma. We could have a look at the Pali. That's now getting kind of interesting, isn't it? Let's see. Um, are we on 267? Punya, that's merit. Um, Papa is evil. Let's see if I can find anything useful in here. Brahmacharya, the holy life. It's a holy life, transcending both merit and demerit. So that's Bahetva, having transcended. It's not anything um, particular that you can see in here. Okay. But yes, we are pointing beyond the realm of, of Kama in this one. The Dhammapada slips in um, very profound lines into otherwise things that otherwise sound a little bit like you know Sunday school ethical lessons. It's another thing I appreciate about it is that you can sort of read it along going, okay, blah, 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 let go of evil, don't be bad, you know, and it sounds a little bit um, simplistic. And then every now and then we get a line like setting aside both merit and evil, going through the world deliberately, that's what makes you a monk. It's like, oh, actually, um, this is quite profound. You know, this is not just about being a good person, although that's a very good start. Okay. See what else goes together here. 270 seems kind of a standalone. Um, yeah, so 270, verse 270, yeah, it just seems to be one of those ones that I feel like got stuck in there, pasted in there, you know, where, uh, oh, no, no, wait, we haven't done 268, 269 yet. Let's do those. Um, would somebody read those? Those have some interesting things in them. Those ones go together also. Evie. Not by observing silence does one become a sage if he be foolish and ignorant. But that man is wise who, as if holding a balanced skill, accepts only the good. The sage thus rejecting the evil is truly a sage, since he, comp <coughs> Excuse me. Since he comprehends both present and future worlds, he is called a sage. Okay, thank you. So this one's worth reading, um, Gills, also. Um, not by silence does an ignorant fool become a sage. The wise person who, as if holding a set of scales, selects what's good and avoids what's evil, is for that reason a sage. Whoever can weigh these two sides of the world is for that reason called a sage. So there is one 
significant difference between the two translations, um, which is that uh, Buddharakata says he comprehends both present and future worlds. And he puts present and future in parentheses because it isn't there. It actually just says one who comprehends both worlds. And so Gill also inserted things. He, wrote, he inserted these two sides of the world. There's no sides um, and there's also no present and future. So there's an interpretation there. What does both worlds mean? And these two translators have chosen rather different things. One that's more about only in this world and Buddharakata as the monk accepts the view of rebirth and says it must be talking about this world and the next world. Um, but I, you notice that we're back to the set of scales. We're back to justice. Um, so there's this sense again of weighing. And um, I want to read also a little uh, note from uh, Gill about there's a pun in this. Another lovely thing about the verses is they sometimes have puns. So he says the word silence, monena, and one ways, munati, are both playing off the word for a sage, which is muni. And literally that word muni means silent one, uh, although we never translate it that way. And you might say, what is all this poly? I've never heard of this, but how about the word shakyamuni? Um, that means the muni of the Sakyan clan. Um, and so it's the sage, um, literally silent one of the Sakyan clan is the name for the Buddha. And so um, in the Pali, this looks much more interesting because we have silence, monena, which is part of muni, silent one. And then this word ways, munati. <laughs> it happens to be just a verb that sounds like that. I don't think it's etymologically related, but that's kind of how this paragraph, how these stanzas tie together and why there's um, this reference to the scales and weighing things. So it's kind of nice. The Buddha does this a lot also through pun is that he'll take a word related to, you know, his tradition like Muni and he'll explain why do we call ourselves Munis? Well, because we know how to weigh Munati, what is good and evil in the world. Um, and so it's kind of a little, I don't know, catchphrase or something. It doesn't really work in English, <laughs> but, um, you know, we do our best. So we would have other things in English uh, that wouldn't work in Pali. So this seems to be back, I think this is back kind of in line with the first two stanzas about weighing things. Other comments on these two stanzas? Yeah, Evie. Well, just, I mean, the thing that jumped out at me, I don't think it's the most important thing, but just that before, like just by talking a lot doesn't make you a wise person. And here, just by being a silent, silent, also doesn't make like, like don't try to Good get point. around it like that. <laughs> so that's true. So the literalists are in trouble. If you read literally, if you talk a lot, it's not good. And then you, think, you might think, well, I'll just be silent, but that doesn't work either. I just thought that was cute. So, and kind of funny, like, you know, don't try it. A person has a teenage son, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> Whoever, whatever, this guy. Buddha you never yeah. know. People can ordain after they have children, so, yep. 
All right. Um, so then we have this one that I think is just stuck in there. He is not noble who injures living beings. He is called noble because he is harmless toward all living beings. It's in line with the um, teachings of this um, chapter, but it's not paired with anything. So, um, and then the last set, even Buddharakata paired together. Um, would somebody read 271, 272, the last two? Jill. Not by rules and observances, not even by much learning, nor by gain of absorption, nor by a life of seclusion, nor by thinking, I enjoy the bliss of renunciation, which is not experienced by the worldling. Should you, O monks, rest content until the utter destruction of cankers, arahantship, is reached? Thank you. And let's see what we have in this other one. Not with virtue or religious practice, great learning, attaining samadhi, dwelling alone, or thinking, I touch the happiness of renunciation unknown by ordinary people, should you, monk, rest assured without having destroyed the toxins. This is... Yeah, giving us a little poke. So um, this is in the same line as the rest of the chapter, right? What things don't really count. And so now he suddenly has changed to, from an ethical stance of, you know, not by these outward things, but instead by inner development. He now brings it a little bit closer. Um, again, my interpretation, but he brings it a little bit closer in to even things that are considered good on the spiritual path, right? So we don't worry too much about silence or not, and, you know, etc. But virtue and religious practice, well, those are important. <laughs> you should do those. This is sila bata, by the way, which are the, um, one of the things that gets let go of at stream entry. Uh, great learning, also a good thing. The Buddha praises that in many cases. Attaining samadhi, you know, that's really good. Uh, that's part of the path. Dwelling alone, seclusion, also important. And this last one, touching the happiness of renunciation. I should be reading the Uttarakata. So uh, I enjoy the bliss of renunciation, which is not experienced by the worldling. Um, you know, that's something that either that refers to being a monk. So you've, but usually what contrasts with the worldling is being um noble so having some some one of the stages of awakening so it's possible this refers to even someone who's a stream enterer remember we talked before about how um in the first turning of the wheel um Kondanya became a stream enterer so he was the attained the first stage of awakening so in this last one the buddha is even saying that attaining the first stage of awakening is not a cause for just for rest is that one should go all the way to Arahantship. That's, I think, what it's trying to say. Other points here? Yeah, Leanne, because there's a lot more here. Um, two things. Uh, the, this just kind of like reminds me of the, the um, raft, um, taking the raft going across and to get to, then you discard the raft once you get to the other side. 
And then the other thing I, is the cankers, the toxins, is that um, greed, hate, and delusion? Or is it? Yeah. A, yeah. Okay. Those are probably the asava, um, which are actually, uh, sorry, those are actually um, greed becoming or sensual pleasure becoming an ignorance, but it's close enough. Okay. Those are different. They're different lists for all the same things. The, uh, the greed, hatred, and delusion are the poisons. And usually cankers and intoxicants are asava, um, which are a slightly different list, but they point toward the same root problems. Okay, thank you. Evie. I have a question because I read, I realize really is a question like maybe for everybody, like the tone of this to me stri strikes me really different and much more stringent than the rest of it. And like, like, oh, you thought you were doing well. Kind of, like, this is how it comes across to me. Like you thought like, oh, you can do this and you can, it's sort of like, it, it's definitely pushing and definitely like sort of guiding. But then here it's kind of like, like, uh, 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 you know, like you thought it was going to be okay. And like, no, you have, it's like this sort of almost perfectionism kind of like, you thought that was good enough, but it's not. He's it's raising the bar. Different to me. And I don't know if that's just because of my childhood or if that's like other people are picking up a, if that like is generally, I don't know if that's me and my conditioning or if it's like. Well, well, let's ask, how did other people take the tone of this last one? Does it seem like a shift in tone? Jill doesn't think so. Um, Dawn. When um, we first read through it, I don't know if I thought really about the shift in tone, but I kind of laughed because I thought it said, your work is never done. It doesn't, <laughs> you know, there's always more, um, and there's not if you reach our hut ship, but that's just the way I kind of perceived it. Just yeah. That we said, yeah. Thanks. Yeah. There's a little upping of the ante here. Yeah. Okay, Bruce. Seems same sort of cautionary too. Don't don't think that by doing these things that look good on the surface that you're really uh, at going to a deep level or whatever, you know, heading towards enlightenment. Don't be fooled. Don't don't rest content too early. <laughs> Susan, you had a comment. Kind of similarly, I, I feel like it's a warning not to be. Um, not to get attached to the shiny objects, ah. the whole thing. That's a nice way of saying it, is that there are, um, there are a lot of shiny objects that we, along life, that we get attracted to. And some of them are kind of, you know, mundane, like, you know, we would want money or, you know, a big house or things like that. And so, um, the Buddha first kind of dispenses with those sorts of things, but then there are a lot of spiritual goodies along the path. Um, you know, samadhi is a great one. Uh, a lot of people practiced samadhi at the time of the Buddha, and it's a wonderful, very pleasant experience. Even the Buddha practiced samadhi, grew, you know, and attained all kinds of uh, jhanas before he realized that in, its, in and of itself wasn't awakening. And we can get attracted to goodies of you know, renunciation of feelings of peace and bliss and uh, learning, like me reading all these books and, you know, um, but he, he, he keeps saying, okay, these things, even the things that are pretty good, like these things, um, don't, don't think that you're finished yet. So yeah, I suppose we could have a negative view of this of, you know, when is it enough? Um, but it's, it's his style. Yes, Jill. 
Um, I just like to say that the, ver the translations give a really different tone. I'm again looking at Tan Jeff. You're looking at Tan Jeff. What does he say? This one. He says, Monk, don't, on account of your precepts and practices, great erudition, concentration attainments, secluded dwelling on the thought, I touch the renunciate ease that the run-of-the-mill people don't know. Ever let yourself get complacent when the ending of effluence is still unattained. That seems more mild to me. The, end, the complacency versus, let's see, what was the word used here? Um, rest content. Oh. Don't rest content. Um, and then, yeah, I just, uh, maybe it yeah. was Gil used, but the whole. What does he say? He says, um, rest assured. Do not oh. rest assured. But it goes with until the utter destruction. I mean, that's part of what makes it feel more um, just stronger, I think. Which yeah. is from what Jill just read. Yeah. And in some cases, we'll find that just certain words have a different land differently for different people. And so um, I encourage reading different translations. And in the case of the Dhammapada, we've already sort of waded into these waters in this class is that there's lots and lots of translations of the Dhammapada, actually, and many of them are free online. So, um, you know, even on Sutta Central, there's one by Ananda Jyoti also, which we didn't even look at. Um, and there's, yeah, there's many. And there's Glenn Wallace and there's K.R. Norman. There are ones that were done by scholars also. So, um, they're all good, and they're all worth comparing to the other ones. See, we're nearing the end of the time. Um, that's nice. We got through this. Uh, are there other, um, but are there other comments? This is the first time as a group we've done a Dhammapada chapter. Did it land differently? How does this compare? to like, we just did a bunch of prose suttas before this. I like the different form. Yeah, the verse the verses are different. Uh, they seem to just come from a different place in a different structure of teaching. There's a number of books that are in verse. Uh, this is one of them, and then there are some that have verses kind of incorporated. But yeah, the verses often come across differently. Susan, I really enjoy you guys geeking out on the different translations. Really fun. So. Keep it coming, please. Okay, great. It is really valuable to hear different ones. And I know you can't hold them all in mind when they're just read and you don't get to look at them, but it's good enough to hear them. Um, so we'll end for today. I have one announcement, which I'll also send an email about for the folks who aren't here. Um, we won't have a class next Friday. We'll have one uh, two weeks from today. And that's because I'm going to be um, sitting a short retreat next uh Wednesday through Sunday. So I, um, I know these online things are, of course, a little bit spacious, but I decided I would just um, not take this hour to uh, do this. Oh, actually, even on that retreat, there are teachings at this time. So we will meet again on whatever day is after that. Is that August 1st? So, July 31st. July 31st. Okay. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Wonderful. Bye-bye. Nice to see Bye. you all. Take care, everybody. Bye. Thank you, Kim. Thank you.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.